family feuds in the Philippines, disinformation and censorship on social media, and a policy barrage from Thailand's new prime minister. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jaffa Kitson, and today is December 20th, 2023. On today's holiday special, we're going to ask Greg and Alina the thoughtful questions you all submitted. Thanks so much for sending them in. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have my predecessor, Karen Lee, in the studio. Welcome back, Karen. Way back in June, I made a promise to do the job justice. Hope you don't think I've been slacking. Hi, Javid. Thanks so much for having me. I really miss living and breathing all things Southeast Asia, so it's great to be back. As my predecessor, Simon, said to me, I love what you've done with the place. Although, you've definitely Gen Z-ified the script. Gen Z-ified? Really? Maybe it was just that one episode that featured both Blackpink and Barbie. Regardless, you've really been keeping up with the time, so good work. Thanks, we try our best. Well, you remember how this goes. Do you want to start? Sure. Our first story is one for all the families undoubtedly duking it out over the dinner table this holiday season. The lesson here? Well, it could be worse, especially if you're in the Philippines. Right. This past November, tensions between President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. and Vice President Sara Duterte, scions of the influential Marcos Romaldes and Duterte political families, have reached fever pitch. The executive duo entered office in May 2022 after running as a unit team that secured the majority of the vote, the first time in four decades. But a growing rift has since driven the two former allies apart. Tell us more, Jaffet. It started in late October. Moves perceived as attacks on Sarah and her family were made by the president and the House of Representatives, which is dominated by Marcus's supporters and led by the president's cousin, Speaker Martin Romualdez. What was the basis for these attacks? House lawmakers criticized Sarah for transferring 125 million pesos, or 2.2 million USD, from Marcus's office to the office of the vice president. This followed an earlier request for 650 million pesos, around 11.7 million USD, in confidential funds for the Office of the Vice President and Department of Education, which Sarah leads. The 125 million pesos were allegedly spent in under 11 days, prompting key opposition figures in the House to file a lawsuit and plan impeachment proceedings. Sarah, for her part, described her critics as, quote, enemies of peace, end quote, while Marcos tactfully declared that, quote, she does not deserve to be impeached. Ooh la la! Perceived attacks on the Duterte family continued into November when a local court released former opposition senator and Duterte critic Leila de Lima. The House also opened an investigation into Duterte ally Apollo Quiboloy, who allegedly spread lies about Speaker Martin Romualdez's foreign trips. To top it all off, Marcos said in late November that his administration is considering a return to the ICC, potentially allowing it to probe into crimes against humanity related to former President Duterte's drug war. As with any family feud, the feuders are trying hard to keep it cool and keep things under the table. Sarah recently emphasized that there are no cracks in her alliance with Marcos, while her father's former chief presidential legal counsel stressed that he is supporting the Marcos administration. But observers of Philippine politics are worried nonetheless, with many warning of fashionalization and destabilization in the government and even the military. Yikes. It's really not that hard to be worried these days, though. There's just so much information coming out from all kinds of sources. At this point, I don't even know what to trust. Well, you're not the only one. In recent months, online disinformation and misinformation, or fake news, has proliferated across Southeast Asian social media, particularly amidst the Israel-Hamas conflict. You would know. You just published an article in Pacific Forum about misinformation in the Philippines last week. Right. But over the past few months, social media companies have been facing increased pressure to regulate online news, with TikTok taking most of the spotlight. No surprise there, TikTok has become one of the most prominent news sources for Southeast Asians, with nearly a quarter of Malaysians and Indonesians turning to the app. 
In late October, Malaysian Communications Minister Fami Fadzil warned TikTok and Meta that the government would take action if the companies were blocking pro-Palestinian content on their platforms. And in late November, Singapore's Law and Home Affairs Minister K. Shanmugam filed a civil lawsuit against TikTok, alleging that it failed to assist him in identifying three users who spread misinformation about him. Wow, TikTok really isn't having a great month. Aren't they also facing a potential ban in the Philippines? True. But that ban has to do with concerns over cyber espionage, much like here in the United States, rather than misinformation. And Philippine officials have stated that the ban might not even cover the general public. In any case, Southeast Asian government's willingness to crack down on online content, whether fake or incendiary, is becoming increasingly apparent. Surely so. Just last week, Malaysian police arrested a 36-year-old man for uploading a TikTok video that suggested that the country should establish diplomatic ties with Israel. He was investigated for apparent sedition. And in October, an Indonesian court sentenced a woman to two years in prison for reciting an Islamic prayer before eating pork in a viral video. The court said that the woman spread information aimed at inciting hatred against religious individuals and specific groups. Okay, I guess the lesson we can take from all of this is to stay away from TikTok. Easy. I'm more of a blue sky guy. Blue what? Never mind. If you say so. Moving on to our final headline of the year, Thai Prime Minister Sitat Thawisin has been releasing policy proposal after policy proposal since assuming office this past August. Thawisin is a political newcomer, previously serving as the CEO and president of his family-owned property empire. But he has been pushing the ruling Thai party to stimulate the economy and narrow his country's wealth inequality. Well in touch with his CEO roots, Sitat has spent the last three months pursuing investment pledges from U.S. companies policies that would position Thailand as the hub of supply chains and bilateral trade agreements. He kicked off his tenure by dining with U.S. Chamber of Commerce and U.S. ASEAN Business Council members and meeting with executives of influential conglomerates. This month, he also met with Tesla executives following a September meeting with Elon Musk. Apparently, he was hoping that executives would fall in love with Thailand. And it appears they have. According to a government spokesperson, Thailand will receive more than 8 billion U.S. dollars worth of investments from Amazon, Google, and Microsoft over the next decade. Still, as CEO of Thailand, Sita has prioritized his e-wallet plan to stoke the economy. This flagship policy aims to hand out 10,000 baht in digital currency to Thais earning less than 70,000 baht per month. The policy is facing strong headwinds as other Thai officials and business groups voice concerns about inflationary risks and mounting public debt. Sita the CEO, thwarted by other CEOs. How poetic. And those are the headlines. Up next, Karen and I will be asking Greg and Alina some rapid-fire questions. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Greg Poling with CSIS, joined as ever by Alina Nor with the Carnegie Endowment. Hey, Alina. Hey, Greg. How are you? I am great. Alina is in Kuala Lumpur. I am in Bangkok. And we are joined by two very special guests in Washington, D.C., our very own Jafet Kitson and former CSISer Karen Lee. Hey, guys. Hey, Greg. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, great to be back. Thanks for coming back. The reason that Jaffet and Karen are here is because this is our second annual end of the year podcast of Palooza. I don't think we came up with a real name. And they're going to run the show. I'm done. Jaffet, over to you. Thank you so much, Greg. So thank you to everyone for submitting all these wonderful questions related to the region. We have condensed them and compiled them and sorted them by region. And we're going to go through them. Karen and I will alternate and we will give plenty of time for Greg and Alina to respond. There will be a couple fun ones in here. So we're excited. 
I'll get started with the first one. Are there any prominent issues or challenges that might influence the United States' foreign policy in Southeast Asia? What a really simple and narrow question. The 2024 election? I'm guessing that's where the reader wants to take this. I mean, the world's a messy and complicated place. So yeah, a lot of things are going to affect U.S. policy in Southeast Asia. I guess I would note that over the last few years, we've had a Russian invasion of Ukraine, the outbreak of a war in Gaza. We've had ongoing tensions between China and the U.S. and Taiwan, plus the after effects of COVID-19 and the economic doldrums. And the Biden administration has remained relatively focused on the Indo-Pacific. So whatever comes up, I think there's no reason to think that the administration will fundamentally change the policy that we've seen pursued in the region, mostly focused on supporting allies and partners. But the overhang for all of this is going to be growing concerns about the 2024 elections and what it will bring. I'm, I'm here in Bangkok for meetings all week, and I don't think I've gotten through a single meeting without a question about 2024. And I don't have any easy answers for anybody, I'm afraid. I mean, I completely agree. That's the big question next year, what happens with the U.S. elections. And I think a lot of it will depend on its outcome, of course. We may see a continuation of the Biden administration's foreign policy towards Southeast Asia, or we may see a slight shift or a completely drastic, dramatic turn of events come November. I basically plus one everything Greg said. I'll go with a more positive one. So there's been an impressive revitalization of U.S. partnerships in the region over the past year, most notably with the Philippines, Vietnam, and Indonesia. What do you think the United States can do to maintain this momentum in 2024? And in your view, what sort of activity would be an example of the highest tier of cooperation? So I think that the momentum has been pretty impressive this year, as pointed out by the listener. And the challenge will be to maintain that momentum. And we just had this question about the elections, uh, the U.S. presidential election next year. And I think it was pretty smart of the Biden administration to have this momentum going before the election uh, campaign really kicks in, because a lot of that attention in the U.S. will be focused on domestic issues. Now, whether that momentum can be sustained throughout next year and beyond is going to depend on how much institutionalization a lot of those bilateral relationships will have been done. And so depending on whether it's a comprehensive strategic partnership or just a strategic partnership or just a comprehensive partnership, I think a lot of that depends as well on the interpretation of each country involved in those different kinds of partnerships, because different countries, different governments have different ideas about what each of those tiers means. And so um, basically, I'm saying a lot of it will depend on what happens next year, and a lot of it will depend on um, what happens with the governments in Southeast Asia next year as well. Because remember, we have elections in Southeast Asia next year as well. I think that's all right. It's hard to imagine any significant change in the trajectory of the relationship with Vietnam so soon after the conclusion of the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. Both governments are are all in on this. So I think we'll see a lot of implementation, whether it's uh, implementing of the Just Energy Transition Partnership or support for the semiconductor industry, more security cooperation, etc. Same with the Philippines, not least because China's not going to stop kicking around Filipino boats in the South China Sea, which will continue to push the Philippines strategically toward the U.S. Singapore will remain stable. Indonesia, of course, has the election, but 
it's hard to imagine any significant shift under any of the three leading candidates. I mean, and certainly I think Prabowo and probably Anis would open different, but would both open areas of deeper cooperation with the U.S. Nobody really knows where Ganjar stands on foreign policy, but no reason to think that he would fundamentally change things. The only other thing I'd add is that we have two other major economies in Malaysia and Thailand that have been relatively underserved by U.S. attention over the course of the administration. And that's not entirely the Biden administration's fault. Anwar finally stabilized government in Malaysia for the first time in five years. Thailand just returned to a, let's call it, democratic system of government for the first time in a decade. So there's opportunities to be pursued in the next year that weren't there for the first couple of years of the administration. I would add a small caveat. I agree in the case of Malaysia, Greg, but at the time of recording, as of yesterday, the Malaysian cabinet has just been reshuffled. So I think we'll need to give the cabinet a little time to ease into whatever it is finessing they're going to do with the Malaysian economy. So there's also that. Sure. And for those of you listening in the future, check out last week's episode where Alina and I picked apart some tensions in the U.S.-Malaysia relationship that might emerge over Prime Minister Anwar's stance on Gaza. Got it. Thank you both so much. For our next one, what role do you think the U.S. should play in supporting regional efforts to address transnational challenges like counterterrorism in Southeast Asia? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I have anything particularly wise or insightful to say on this one. I mean, I guess I'm I'm in Bangkok, which is really the heart of U.S. efforts in tackling transnational crime across the region. I visited the U.S. Embassy yesterday, which is the, depending on how you measure it, the largest or second largest U.S. Embassy in the world. And that's because it houses something like 54 different U.S. agencies. I didn't even know there were 54 agencies in the U.S. government. But it speaks to the level of nuts and bolts pragmatic cooperation between the U.S. and Thailand as a hub for particularly tackling things like trafficking in wildlife, trafficking in persons, drug trafficking, of course, and other transnational crime here in mainland Southeast Asia. So I haven't heard the word counterterrorism in a long time with regards to the U.S. uh, relationship with Southeast Asia. Unfortunately, I do think, though, that there might be an uptick from next year onwards in terms of terrorist threats and attacks because of what's happening in Gaza right now. And I think you're going to see a lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of grievances that are going to translate into violence, threats or acts in the region or elsewhere. And whether this provides an opportunity for greater cooperation between the US and Southeast Asia, I think depends on the nature of that cooperation, because we've seen in the past that that kind of cooperation hasn't always been helpful because the root causes of, of terrorism remain unabated. And so we're going to see a rehash of the same problems that we saw, you know, 20 years ago when 9-11 happened. Again, depending on the nature of collaboration, it's going to the level of work between both the U.S. and Southeast Asian countries is going to fluctuate in terms of whether or not the counterterrorism aspect of the relationship can move forward or not. Because in in my opinion, it really hasn't gone anywhere, despite all the initiatives that have been put into place um, over the past couple of decades. If I may insert a thought, actually, it seems like another issue that's jumped on mainland countries' radars is the rise in cyber crime rings. Mm -hmm. Do you think the U.S. has a role to play in these, in helping with any law enforcement cooperation to crack down on these? I know those governments have been talking to China about it, but do you think it's in the U.S.'s benefit to address that issue? 
this is another issue that I've heard in almost every meeting here in Bangkok, the so-called pig butchering schemes, as as they're called, the cyber scams in which citizens from third countries, mainly middle class citizens who come to Thailand thinking that they're taking up jobs in, in places like the IT industry end up trafficked into scam compounds in Cambodia, Myanmar, uh, or Laos, then engage in cyber scams, many of which target the Chinese mainland, which is why China's been so heavily involved. There is plenty of opportunity and plenty of desire for U.S. cooperation, although this is one of those areas where I think there's a lot of opportunity for cooperation with China and a lot of interest in cooperation with China because it's at least over the last few years, disproportionately been Chinese citizens that are targeted, though that's no longer necessarily the case. The U.S. is stepping up in some ways. We just this past week saw an expansion of sanctions by the U.S. and European governments targeting the scam compounds and companies in three places in particular, the Golden Triangle SEZ in Laos, a constellation of places in Cambodia, Sihanoukville and Koh Kong included, and the Suikoko zone in Myanmar. So I think you'll see more cooperation, but I'm not sure that the U.S., that this is one that necessarily the U.S. will be the leading partner. It will be one of many, since this is really a global problem in a way that most other trafficking problems in Southeast Asia historically have not been. Oh, thanks for bringing that up, Karen. I meant to address that and then got distracted. So I think I agree with Greg that there is room for cooperation in this sense. And I think the biggest positive that the U.S. can contribute to Southeast Asia is in the form of technical training, particularly with cybercrime, not necessarily with the things that Greg was talking about, although that's really important as well. And I do think it presents an opportunity for both the U.S. and China to work together with Southeast Asian countries and governments on the pick butchering scams. With, with cybercrime in particular, I know that there are technical training and capacity building initiatives that are already in place, but I think these can be stepped up, particularly as cybercrimes become more sophisticated. Now, I have a fun question to ask before we move on to our next one. And Greg, I'm very excited to ask you this now that I no longer work for you. But who's your favorite child? Southeast Asia program or AMTI? <laughs> Why? I can't, like, this is a, if we were both hanging off a cliff, who would you save, mom? Oh, God. Southeast Asia, I guess. I worked in Southeast Asia first. I can argue that the South China Sea is part of Southeast Asia, but I can't argue that all of Southeast Asia is part of AMTI. Sorry, sorry, Team AMTI. This is going to come back to bite me because I literally wrote a book on the South China Sea, and so now it looks ungrateful. Wow, thank you for being honest. We will save this moment forever. I'll enjoy this. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, perfect segue. Our next question has to do with South China Sea maritime issues. Do either of you think that the nascent lithium mining industry in the region, like in southern Thailand, has a future role to play for Southeast Asian small navies, like in the production of EV batteries for UAVs or UUVs? Does this feel like a stump the hosts segment, Alina? Is that what's going on here? Yeah, I feel like this is a trick question. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe you have extensive technical knowledge on this issue of EV batteries, Greg, and how they use in unmanned vessels. I've mouthed off in the past about the need to incorporate uncrewed platforms more into maritime domain awareness in the region. And I've mouthed off about the growing critical mineral sector in the region. I've never mouthed off about the intersection between the two. I'm going to pass on this, unfortunately, because I don't have enough knowledge on this subject. 
The listener gets a point for stumping the hosts. Understood, but I promise the intention wasn't to stump the hosts. <laughs> Was this a question from you, Jaffet? It is not from me, no. From one of our viewers submitted this question over email. Next, then, I have a question on Indonesia. What do you both think about Prabowo's political transformation? And if he's elected, how do you think his past might affect, if at all, how the U.S. government interacts with him? Was this submitted by our intern, Angus Lamb? Actually, no. This was not submitted by Angus Lamb. Literally just wrote a piece with that title. All right. (laughs) Alina, do you want to start? Now I'm intrigued uh, about this piece. So I think it's fascinating how Prabowo's team has managed to reshape his image from an alleged uh, human rights violator in the past to this cuddly grandfatherly figure who is appealing to the masses on TikTok. And I, I think that aside, like how he's come across to the populace in Indonesia, the U.S. will probably welcome him if he becomes the president of Indonesia next year. And a lot of the human rights violations will be conveniently set aside. And I think we've seen a, an example of this very recently. I won't mention specific examples, but I think we all know what I'm talking about. I think more importantly, the ramifications of that, I understand the practicalities of doing that, but there is going to be even more of a dissonance between the U.S.'s rhetoric on human rights and its actions in terms of what it actually does uh, when it comes to leaders, political leaders who have in the past uh, fallen way afoul of some of the rhetoric that the U.S. has been preaching to the region in particular. I, I don't have a ton to add other than I'll note that this, I think, is symptomatic of the broader shift in U.S. policy when it comes to support for good governance and democratization globally and in the region, which I'll say I I generally support, which is an increasing recognition, at least in much of the government, certainly not all, and arguably not with President Biden himself, but in much of the government, that U.S. leverage is far weaker than we grew accustomed to believing from the 90s on, and that in the wake of the 2016 elections, we have lost whatever moral high ground we thought we had to lecture and hector on these issues. And so while the U.S. remains committed to a values-based diplomacy, it's mainly in kind of the positive, not negative aspects of that, meaning we will remain committed to supporting civil society and open media and so on abroad. But the finger wagging and sanctioning that had characterized our approach to democracy promotion for the last 30 years has been at best ineffective and at worst counterproductive. If Prabowo is the president, he will be the freely elected president of the second, I'm sorry, third largest democratic country on earth. And that is the choice of the Indonesian people. So moving on to our favorite topic, trade, we got a few questions on APEC and IPEF to which I would point our listeners to the recent crossover episode you all did with Trade Guys on Outcomes. But as a related question, in your wildest dreams, which deliverables would you have wanted to come out of the APEC summit, which you could argue was somewhat overshadowed by the Xi Biden summit and pandas? 
I mean, I guess the easy answer is pillar one of IPEF. I would have liked to see an actual trade policy come out of the administration, but that was, in my opinion, never going to happen. As when we asked this question last year during this episode. <laughs> yes, the exact same. I mean, they tried they tried to sneak through a half trade pillar that like all the easy stuff and none of the hard stuff. And the U.S. Congress put a stop to that. But even if that had sneaked through, would any of us really have been that enthused by a trade pillar that didn't include digital trade, that didn't include labor environment, that only talked about trade facilitation, the lowest possible hanging fruit. So thank you for pointing out that I gave the exact same answer last year, Karen, because I think it would be very easy for people to say, well, hindsight's always twenty twenty. No, I'm pretty sure for a year and a half, I've been saying that it would be impossible to conclude pillar one with the position that USTR staked out. And unfortunately, I was right. I mean, I would just add, and this is my undying cynicism, right? And mod by personal trauma. Again, we do have the US presidential election next year. Even if trade got passed in pillar one, so what? You know, if it gets ripped up at the end of next year or the start of 2025, I'll just leave it at that. I'll say this. Ironically, if you are in many places in the United States, I would argue like Virginia, like California, like Illinois, that is already past your own GDPR-like digital privacy regime, the failure of Pillar 1 might actually be good news for you because it means that the rest of Asia, excepting perhaps Japan, maybe Korea, and Singapore, is almost certainly going to adopt their own GDPR-like regime. Any window of opportunity the United States had to influence the development of norms around digital privacy, we've probably given up that last best chance. The European model or something like it will almost certainly become the dominant model. That sounds about right. Somewhere out there, Bill Reinch is shaking his head. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you both so much. Which leads me to another wonderful, fun question submitted by a listener through email. Which person on the Southeast Asia program team is most likely to be an elf in disguise? The current team? Maybe current, past, present, whoever you'd like. Future. Future. (laughs) The easy answer would be Jafet or perhaps our program coordinator, Lauren, both of whom tend to be the more, let's say, bubbly and optimistic. But I think the real answer would be our deputy, Andre Kanadlagawa, given his complete hatred of modern technology and formats like this. He feels very much like he would appreciate the craftsmanship of a good handmade wooden toy. I think I would be inclined to agree. He's going to love that answer. He's going to love it. He's also brewing his own mead, which feels like a very elvish thing to do. Apparently, he's going to share it at the upcoming holiday party. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Moving on to a little bit less of a light topic, we're going on to COP28. Are you both more or less optimistic about the region's energy transition commitments following the summit? I think there have been some encouraging statements, country statements that have been made at COP28. I just, including from the Malaysian Minister of Environment, but I think the structure and the system is bigger than all of Southeast Asia, and that's what really needs to be addressed. Plus, you know, again, my, my cynicism coming through 
we've heard about the controversies of the, the, the people attending COP28 this year. It's become another, like, basically oil and gas huge meeting. I won't say which one. It, it reminds me of basically the business interests, the lobby groups that have been in attendance at COP28, plus the person leading COP28 have all come under scrutiny and criticism. And so I wonder how much of sincerity has really been pledged at COP28 that is larger than any of the country pledges that have been made by Southeast Asian governments participating there. Yeah, I agree. I didn't see anything out of COP28 that made me more or less optimistic. I think that we've seen plenty of initiatives over the last couple of years on the donor side that will help along the margins and the recent implementation finally of the Asian Development Bank's energy transition mechanism to help speed up the early closure of a coal plant in the Philippines is a good step in the right direction where we've had, you know, some of these initiatives have been announced years ago and a little bit of money's finally flowing. But the structural incentives have remained unchanged. I think the region is modestly committed to a clean energy transition if it can be made affordable and the donor nations are modestly committed to helping make it affordable but there's still a huge gap between rhetoric and reality and we still need technologies to mature that do not currently exist for any of this to be possible sounds good thank you so much our last serious question has to do with regional ties between asean countries the united states and china Given the current administration's emphasis on containing or countering China, it plays the risk of alienating ASEAN countries which might have strong ties to China. How should the U.S. plan to navigate this? I reject the premise of the question. I get it that it's the way the question was framed is in vogue, but I don't, I mean, I, I continue to believe that no sober-minded U.S. administration official believes that the United States can or should counter or contain China. The U.S. and China are in a long-term strategic competition, a framing that Xi Jinping finally accepted himself uh, when he visited San Francisco for APEC last month. That competition will leave room for cooperation on some areas, but mainly will be a competition over norms, over how the system functions. And there is an enormous amount of agency for middle powers, including in Southeast Asia, to help shape those norms. So... I don't know that we have an easy answer, but I don't necessarily think that that competition alienates or turns off Southeast Asian states writ large. You see growing support for the U.S. and other partners and plummeting opinions about China in the Philippines, in Vietnam, increasingly negative emotions evinced in polling in Indonesia, even though the U.S. and China remain kind of equally positively supported in Indonesia, China evinces more than double the negative emotions. The U.S. still maintains an edge in Thailand, and I see no reason that that would change. And the places that are allegedly pro-China, I mean, you're basically talking about Cambodia, Laos, and the Burmese junta, none of whom are asking their peoples what they think about the U.S. and China. So, I mean, certainly if the, if the question is, can the U.S. go too far here? Yeah, obviously. If the question is, is the U.S. going too far? No, I don't think so. And I think San Francisco landed in probably the place that we're going to be for the foreseeable future. I think you qualify it, Greg. Sober-minded administration is key and bears emphasis. And so if 
we are to assume that that sober-mindedness is going to continue into the next few years, then all of what you say will hopefully hold true. But if the opposite comes uh, about, then I think all of us in Southeast Asia are going to have to be prepared for that repeat reality. And I think uh, many governments in Southeast Asia are anticipating that contingency already. Look, I think the U.S. is going to do whatever it thinks it wants to do in its national interest. And the onus is on Southeast Asian governments to navigate those tensions, not so much the U.S., or China navigating those tensions. Of course, there is a responsibility for both those powers to do so. But I think putting the burden on you know, either the US or China or expecting these powers to do something about their conflict competition, whatever you want to call it, is maybe putting too much hope in others than, than Southeast Asian governments should be doing. I have our last question, which is actually one that we wanted to ask last year, but ran out of time for. We're continuing our trend of having former intern SD Chen promote the podcast to her <laughs> foreign colleagues. So I do think we have a number of students on our listener ranks. And so what advice do you have for young professionals looking to enter the Southeast Asia policy space, whether they're completely new to it or are looking to pivot from another region? The best advice I would give is if you want to work on Southeast Asia policy, then do that and do it on whatever issues you're most passionate about. I mean, what makes, I think, Southeast Asia work dynamic and exciting compared to, say, China work is that you get to pick from 10 countries and, and myriad issues don't feel like you have to try to look in a crystal ball and figure out what is most bankable, right? Like, what what is the U.S. going to be focused on? What is China going to be focused on? No. Just do the thing that you like, that you're passionate about, and eventually the wheel will turn and that will be in demand. I was told early in my career not to get pigeonholed as the South China Sea guy. Worked out okay for me. Between 10, 11 countries of Southeast Asia, there are all these intersecting points. Sorry, sorry Timor Leste, 11 as, countries. <laughs> <laughs> such as how the critical minerals industry intersects with unmanned uh, vehicles, for example. That could be a niche. But I think my points of contribution advice, I, I don't know if you should take advice from me, honestly. For anyone looking to study, understand Southeast Asia more, if you can, try to spend some time in the region and learn a language because that will change your perspective of how you view Southeast Asia, whether you're a Southeast Asian or whether you're American or from elsewhere. I'm pretty sure those were exactly our answers last year. We didn't ask this question last year. Last year, we asked about book recommendations. So this is your first time speaking to the public about it. Oh. Okay. Love it. Well, thank you both so much for your thorough answers. That's all we have written out here. I'm sure the listeners will be deeply grateful for the insight. All right. Thanks, Javid. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having Great. me. Happy holidays, everyone. See you in 2024. See you then. Thanks again for joining us for this special holiday episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at scaradio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Angus Lamb and Corey Donnelly. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. 
My name is Japheth Kitsan. And I'm Karen Lee. And we'll see you in the new year for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Happy holidays, and thank you all so much for your support over the last year.